The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. My children, long have I waited for this moment. The memories you bring of your lush and beautiful earth, the green fields and blue skies, the simple shepherds and their flocks. You know of earth? You've been there? Once I stretched out my hand and earth trembled and I breathed upon it and spring returned. You mentioned Agamemnon, Hector, Odysseus. How do you know about them? Search your most distant memories, those of the thousands of years past, and I am there. Your fathers knew me and your father's fathers. I am Apollo. And I am the Tsar of all the Russias. Mr. Jack. I'm sorry, Captain. I never met a god before. And you haven't yet. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, October 4th, 2018. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Our show last week has generated some fascinating and valuable feedback, and it made it possible for us to continue that discussion again today. We titled our show last week, Our Godless Morality, which was not meant to be taken as making any case for atheism, but to reflect the theme of our show, that the source of morality is within mankind itself. And while the idea that morality is part of us offers comfort to some, Others are made deeply uncomfortable with the idea of existence and free will not being dependent upon a deity or some kind of first cause. We'll be sharing some of our feedback and viewpoints with you today, but not until we remind you to write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, and follow us on SoundCloud, hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave, Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org where you can access all of Just Right social media links and, of course, all of our archive broadcasts, including our show last week. The following was posted to Just Right's website last week, and because it offers both a general summary of the points made then and is the general commentary to which our feedback was directed on Facebook, we shall review it here so that we are all on the same page on this one. As faith-based religion continues to lose its monopoly on morality, the source and nature of mankind's morality is at last being openly questioned and discussed. In fact, that discussion has been drawing unprecedented audiences to both social media and to live venues where the likes of Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris have essentially established the popular and incorrect framework of this public debate. One cannot resolve a philosophical dilemma without confining oneself to the discipline of philosophy itself. In attempting to resolve issues of free will, determinism, choice, morality, neither faith nor pragmatism offer any solutions. Morality has but one source and one standard, the preservation of human life itself. That is the good. The destruction of human life is the evil. 
Morality has no other application or purpose, and like any discipline, the development of an objective moral code is fundamentally a science, and as such, must be based on evidence and reason, not on faith or intuition. As the third branch in the hierarchy of philosophy, the first two being metaphysics and epistemology, the development of any moral code will necessarily be based on whatever conclusions have been drawn from the first two. Makes sense, right? This is why the discussion about morality has largely become hijacked by a needless and meaningless debate over atheism versus religious faith. Metaphysics and epistemology deal with two primary concepts that we call axiomatic. That means they are not subject to proof. You can't prove them or disprove them. They have to be accepted. You have no choice. And that is existence and consciousness. The idea of existence, a concept of something that has no beginning and no end, represents a dilemma for many, since it would appear to defy the laws of causality. After all, there's no first cause. Who or what caused existence itself? This, of course, is not a valid question, and the failure to address this epistemological error has quote-unquote caused untold suffering throughout history. Cause only properly applies to human action, hence the need for morality. Cause does not apply to metaphysical events where cause becomes an infinite regress of infinite variables which include entities and actions, always defined subjectively by the assumptions, needs, or purpose of an observer. There's no other way to look at cause. Similarly, consciousness, particularly of the self and one's own identity, is complicated by arguments concerning free will and its apparent conflict with a deterministic universe. Without free will, it is rightly argued, man cannot be a moral agent. Yet free will is acknowledged as a given because it can be observed in practice. And were it not so, no one could be held responsible, like being a cause, for one's own actions. In other words, morality would not be possible nor would justice, nor would individual freedom in a free society. In the attempt to reconcile free will and freedom of choice with this deterministic universe, many resort to a leap of faith, suggesting that free will is somehow divinely endowed upon mankind since free will allows man to escape from the determinism of his universe. Though desired and valued, free will is seen as something unnatural since it appears to reside outside the confines imposed by the deterministic laws of nature. But this view again arises from an epistemological error, one that assumes a conflict between the deterministic nature of the universe and the wonder and the beauty of freedom that is the consequence of possessing free will. It must be understood that what is meant by determined in a philosophical context are the laws of the universe itself, and in particular, the past. History cannot be changed or altered, and each individual is born into an environment determined, quote-unquote, by its immediate past. Free will can only be exercised in the present. The only possible point of action and actions freely chosen are determined, quote-unquote, by the free agent's purpose and code of morality. Those same actions have consequences that will either enhance life or diminish it. So the undetermined is the future, and it is in navigating that undetermined future that we require morality to guide us. In the act of choosing between what we know 
is good and what we know is evil. The existence of free will is both revealed and confirmed. There is no conflict between determinism and free will. And as we concluded on last week's show, the great irony is that what has been determined is that human beings do indeed have free will. Nor could it be otherwise. So that was just a summary of last week's program, bringing us back to the present and to some feedback and reactions to our post. One of the first people that reacted was Paul B., who said, I'd very much like to hear responses to this from both Dr. Jordan B. Peterson and Sam Harris, to which I responded, wouldn't we all? That would be an interesting exchange, wouldn't it? Hugo C. writes, You have not determined anything. You just assume free will with no proof. And you just assume that the protection of human life is the only basis for morality. But it could be other things. Well written, but inconclusive. (laughs) Well, thanks for the compliment, Hugo. But to what proof are you actually referring or possibly referring to? I can't think of any. There's none possible. And that's the whole and entire point of our whole discussion. Our conclusion was that free will like the concept of existence itself, is not subject to quote-unquote proof in the sense of that proof being some kind of a reasoned, logical argument leading to a satisfactory conclusion that free will and existence are valid concepts. The only way to determine those truths is through the evidence of our senses, which is not proof in the way you imply. Proof only applies to those arguments, assertions, and theories that are capable of being disproven or proven false. You can't prove something if you can't prove it false. You have to have the two options. Existence and free will cannot be proven false. Therefore, they cannot be subject to any process of proof. And that's what we demonstrated last week. We'll again today. Reality does not allow for contradictions. And one cannot prove that existence does not exist or the proof itself would not exist. One cannot prove that consciousness does not exist since if so, there would be no consciousness to assess the truth of its own non-existence. You following me here? Nor can any argument be made against the existence of free will since it would require the exercise of such free will to make that argument. In fact, One cannot make any argument regarding the existence of anything, be it free will or be it a simple dollar coin held in your hand. Now imagine that for a minute. Suppose you've got a dollar coin in your hand. Now prove to me that it exists by way of reasoned logic or argument. You cannot. The only way to demonstrate the coin's existence is by pointing to the coin using the evidence of our senses in the same way we demonstrate existence and free will directly from observation. By the way, that's the only way you can demonstrate a color. You can't explain a color to somebody. You have to point to it. This is red. This is blue. This is what it looks like. And even there, people might be seeing a different thing if they're colorblind, right? But that's the only way to experience it and to understand its nature. So again, the only way to demonstrate the coin's existence is by pointing to the coin, using the evidence of our senses. And that's the same way we demonstrate existence and free will, directly from observation. So in this sense, you're correct. That is not a proof, since in order for it to be a proof, it must be capable of being disproven. And you can't. And that's why philosophers refer to everything that quote-unquote exists as the metaphysically given. 
There's nothing to prove or disprove. Existence exists. It is axiomatic, meaning not subject to any process of proof. And all proofs, whether in mathematics or in logic, properly fall into the field of epistemology, where it is possible for theories and assertions to be proven or disproven as being valid, ironically against the unprovable but axiomatic reality of existence. Isn't that an irony? Finally, we should point out that the protection of human life as the only basis of morality is not a view based on assumption, you know, like without any argument or evidence, but on reason. And we'll get to that issue in our upcoming response to Ken M following our upcoming bumper. And you know, sometimes the only proof we can have regarding the existence of something is the evidence of our senses. And even if we have more proof than that, the evidence of the senses is always our starting point. As illustrated by Professor Daniel N. Robinson, Ph.D., City University of New York, and of the faculty at Oxford University, Distinguished Professor Emeritus, Georgetown University. We've heard his voice on the show before, and this is from his 60-part audio series, Great Ideas of Philosophy, in which he talks about Aristotle on what is the starting point on our journey to knowledge. How does the metaphysics begin, this utterly deep and penetrating inquiry. It begins this way. All men by nature desire to know. An example of this is the delight we take in our senses. For even apart from their usefulness, they are loved for their own sake, and none more than the sense of sight. Here is the commencement of the metaphysics all men by nature desire to know, so he already accepts that there is an inexplicable impulse within us to acquire knowledge of the world. And then, in a nearly offhand way, he says straight out that the evidence for this universal inclination is what? The delight we take in our senses. So here at the outset we discover that this long-term student of Plato's is not to offer a philosophy that depreciates the senses. Aristotle is too much the biologist, too much the natural scientist, too much the man with both feet on the ground to be dismissive of the information gleaned by the senses. As an opening statement, the first sentence of the metaphysics, the opening sentences, are a veritable vindication of knowledge gleaned by perception. That this is incomplete, there is no doubt. But if we engage the problem of knowledge with any hope of success, perception must be the starting point. The starting point for our journey toward the truth is a sensory awareness of the world around us. In fact, in other works, Aristotle will define the very essence of animal as such as, quote, that which has sensation. The very power that establishes an entity as an animal is the capacity for sensation. In his naturalistic works on the parts of and, and the history of animals, Aristotle assigns to perception many powers and functions that we would be inclined to subsume under such headings as intelligence or cognition. And in doing so, he grants to the animal kingdom rich perceptual powers that go well beyond elementary sensory functions. But he will then deny the animal kingdom that culminating and defining rational power, 
that he regards as reserved to the human psyche alone. Now this is less Aristotle depreciating the animal kingdom as elevating the role of perception in the affairs of life and in adaptation to the demands of the environment. Now let me move to William James's famous will to believe. To seek then a warrant for a given belief is to seek some justification for holding it that would distinguish the belief from a merely preferred fantasy. William James looked to life on the whole as the source of any such warrant. Life on the whole, of course, is an organic, evolving pattern of interests. The objects that make up the knowable world are made more or less vivid by the active process of selection, which itself is a reflection on one's interests and aims. The pragmatic warrant defended by James is expressed this way. He says, quote, A pragmatist turns his back resolutely and once and for all upon a lot of inveterate habits dear to professional philosophers. He turns away from abstraction and insufficiency, from verbal solutions, from bad a priori reasons, from fixed principles, closed systems, and pretended absolutes and origins. He turns towards concreteness and adequacy, towards facts, towards action, and towards power. Close quote. Consider Hume's famous problem of induction. According to Hume, we have no rational or logical warrant for assuming that the future is in any way obliged or necessitated to mimic the past. Thus, the faith we have in the continuing operation of the laws of science, or just the operation of a can opener, cannot be rationally justified. So disturbed am I by this that I quickly grab a can opener, open a tin of coffee, and make a strong cup for myself. As it happens, though there is much to be said for the anti-realist philosophy of science, we've succeeded in visiting the moon and returning home safely, and all such achievements are predicated on the belief, may I say it, the faith we have, that the lawfulness of reality is neither chimerical nor episodic. When the car fails to start in the morning, we do not become skeptical about the laws governing the internal combustion engine. We assume the car isn't functioning properly. Now, understood in these terms, the test that a belief would have to pass for it to be warranted is one that relates not to that closed system or block universe according to which physics is complete, but to the facts, actions, and powers at work in our efforts to satisfy what turn out to be our most compelling interests. I don't know about you. But Hume, suggesting that he so disturbed am I by this in reference to his constant doubt that the laws of the universe will not change from day to day, suggests a disturbance a little more disturbed than the word might have been intended. And that's why in our summary of last week's show, we were forced to conclude that in attempting to resolve issues of free will, the idea of faith and pragmatism, neither of them offer any solutions, and that includes pragmatism. I've talked against pragmatism many times on this show. 
quote, the test that a belief has to pass to be warranted is to the facts, actions, and powers at work in the effort to satisfy what turns out to be our most compelling interests, concludes Dr. Robinson. And this too speaks to our observation made earlier. Cause only properly applies to human action not to metaphysical events where cause becomes that infinite regress of infinite variables, always defined subjectively by the assumptions, needs, or purpose of an, of an observer. If you're going to talk about the cause of something, then that something already has to be known. What is the cause of X? Then you have to talk in reference to X. Everything has a different cause. It's infinite. You could go back to the beginning of time, which has no beginning, but you could try. <laughs> Robert Y. writes, ontology, phenomenology, concepts that are axiomatic, meaning they are not subject to proof but must be accepted, existence and consciousness. That's his entire comment. So I guess he's trying to draw our attention to ontology, which is the branch of metaphysics dealing with the philosophical theory of reality. Whereas phenomenalism is the doctrine that denies either our knowledge or the existence of a reality beyond phenomena. So if you want to look into that, Roberts offered us a science or a discipline towards which to look. From Ken M., who writes, We get our morals from religion. Our laws are based on religion no matter where you go in the world. God has given us free will. You may follow his teachings and be with him, or you can deny him and not be with him. If we are calling anarchy free will, now we have a problem, because anarchy is the ultimate free will. End quote. <laughs> well, Ken, we don't get, quote-unquote, our morals from quote-unquote, religion, in the sense that religion is the source of the morals themselves. That's not so. Moral codes arise from knowledge, and knowledge is subject to error, to faith, and to misunderstanding, as in the sense of, you know, knowing something that isn't so. Reality is the only possible standard of what is so, and reason the only means of validating it. A religion, quote-unquote, can be based on any premise, whether mystical or secular, or real values or false values. That's why there are so many differing and contradictory religions, many glaringly oblivious to what is so. Religion is but one form of expressing a moral code, and properly belongs in the philosophical field of aesthetics, not in metaphysics or epistemology where it has been mistakenly placed, causing untold confusion and creating irresolvable dilemmas. And that's a big issue I'm going to be getting into as our show closes off today. The stories told in conjunction with religious beliefs, whether real or imaginary, are part of the expression of that religion. They are not a metaphysical source of any values, but are instead a representation of those values. The values themselves have their source in reality, and objective, real values are based on human life as the standard of those values. Unlike the other four fields of philosophy, metaphysics, epistemology, ethics, morality, and politics, in the field of aesthetics, we are able to express truths without the necessity of using literal facts of reality. An entirely fictional story, for example, or a parable, may well express a truth that actually reflects reality. Now, equating free will with anarchy 
is a non sequitur, nor has anarchy ever been raised in this discussion. The fact that people are able to choose anarchy among a given set of political options does not in any way define free will as anarchy any more than choosing communism or conservatism would equate those two political options with meaning exactly the same thing as free will. Free will is not to be equated with any given particular choice. Free will is about being able to make any choice, good or bad, or even indifferent to issues of morality. You know, like, will that be chocolate, strawberry, or vanilla? <laughs> and finally, consider two of the primary religious axioms from the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. Note that each represents a moral code clearly based on a standard of human life. Now, a strictly religious commandment based on some other value than life could just as easily have been written thusly. Thou shalt kill, and thou shalt steal. Because, hey, that's the only way you can get what you want and a way to avoid the effort of creating that which you are stealing from others. I mean, this too is a moral code. Though with good reason, we describe that kind of moral code as being evil or immoral. Again, based on our knowledge that it is anti-life. And that was my first response to Ken, who then replied and said, just right, well, if you say so, you're the expert, or so you believe in your opinion, end quote. Well, Ken, we encourage you and others not to accept our opinion just because, quote, we say so. That's called deferring to authority. It's also an element of philosophy. And it's unnecessary for anyone willing to discover the reality of reality. I mean, it's one thing to accept authority if you agree with it. It's quite another to simply accept it based on some sort of undefined faith in authority. Nothing expressed by us is so just because we say so and because it's our opinion. While our many years of experience dealing with philosophical matters may qualify us as being knowledgeable on a particular subject, all available on our site by the way, we're no experts, nor is being an expert any assurance that we're correct. Many quote-unquote experts have been completely wrong on their subjects of expertise. In the humanities and philosophical departments of universities across the continent, experts abound at teaching what is not so, which is something that makes us cringe when we're being called an expert. Anyone is free and qualified to verify or dispute any of our conclusions, so long as they are committed to an objective process of reason that begins with a question in search of an answer and not with an answer in search of the appropriate question. To assert that the existence of existence is just an opinion, anyone's, is to avoid the inescapable fact that some opinions are valid while others are not. From our own perspective, we're always hard at work trying to disprove our own theories and assumptions. And along the way, we've altered and amended our own opinions many times. We have no stake or interest or anything to gain by maintaining a false position, particularly on a show that we call Just Right. But don't just take our word, or anyone else's for that matter, on faith or on authority. Knowledge of reality and its nature are indeed verifiable by anyone who chooses to do so. And that choice is yours. It has not been determined until you make it. Hugo C. writes in response to our commentary in the first quarter. And he comments, here's the way I see it. Free will can be proven false. 
The idea of free will is that a conscious agent has control over his life. This conscious agent is thought to be the thinker of the thoughts, a kind of conscious center of perceptions, and it is folk knowledge to believe it has control. Yet this thinker has no control. The belief that this thinker of thoughts has control over things can be proven false and has been proven false. There is no need for free will to prove that free will does not exist. I agree that existence, the whole of it, is axiomatic, but free will is not on the same level. Well, here's, a, here's how, what I would say to Hugo. You know, we have yet to see a credible argument disproving free will, even though we're aware that many philosophers of the past have argued just that, while ignoring all of the irreconcilable contradictions such an argument presents along the way. So where's the proof or argument? If free will can be proven false, demonstrate that. Free will has never been proven false because it can't be. That's the whole point. Though many assertions have been made to that effect, the existence of deities has also been quote-unquote proven by those who rely on their leap of faith as all the proof they need. But free will is not about control over one's life. What we have is control over our thoughts, actions, and choices. To assert otherwise is to admit that your own actions and thoughts are not yours, that they have already been predetermined for you. If that's the case, then what or who are you? Free will is required to prove or assert anything, not just the nature of free will. As Ayn Rand so clearly illustrated, quote, to think is an act of choice. Man is a being of volitional consciousness. Reason does not work automatically. Thinking is not a mechanical process. The connections of logic are not made by instinct. A being of volitional consciousness has no automatic course of behavior. He needs a code of values to guide his actions. So any being that even requires a moral code of values, or knowledge for that matter, cannot be deterministic in the sense of having no free will. It would also mean that there's no difference between the meanings of voluntary and involuntary. Yet even those philosophers who attempt to deny free will are always forced to make those very distinctions. In the very act of denying that humans have free will, the same philosophers repeat the use of the terms involuntary and voluntary all the time. It's almost, it's almost laughable. This too is a contradiction, a universal law that cannot be broken. Man's actions become determined only after such actions have been taken, when the consequences of such action becomes a part of the determined past. But with respect to the present and to the indeterminate future, determinism has no place. Take care not to confuse the metaphysical meaning of determinism with the human expression of will, of thought or action or choice in the sense of an individual being determined to accomplish a given task or goal. Two different things. The latter use of the word determined actually refers to the exercise of will, while the former use of determined refers to that which is not subject to change or alteration or to the exercise of will. Again from Ayn Rand, man's consciousness shares with animals the first two stages of its development, sensations and perceptions, but it is the third stage, conceptions, that makes him man. Sensations are integrated into perceptions automatically by the brain of a man or of an animal. But to integrate perceptions into conceptions by a process of abstraction 
is a feat that man alone has the power to perform, and he has to perform it by choice. The process of abstraction and of concept formation is a process of reason, of thought. It is not automatic or instinctive or involuntary nor infallible. Man has to initiate it, sustain it, and bear responsibility for its results. The preconceptual level of consciousness is non-volitional. Volition begins with the first syllogism. Man has the choice to think or to evade, to maintain a state of full awareness or to drift from moment to moment in a semi-conscious daze at the mercy of whatever associational whims the unfocused mechanism of his unconsciousness produces. When a man unfocuses his mind, he may be said to be conscious in a subhuman sense of the word, since he still experiences sensations and perceptions, but in the sense of the word applicable to man, in the sense of a consciousness which is aware of reality and able to deal with it, a consciousness able to direct the actions and provide for the survival of a human being, an unfocused mind is not conscious. So that's Ayn Rand. Some people use God to justify free will, and other people use free will to justify God. And then there's St. Thomas Aquinas, whose five ways to prove the existence of God is reviewed here, once again by Professor Daniel Robinson. Thus do we return to Thomas Aquinas and his by now famous five ways to prove the existence of God as developed in the Summa Theologiae. Well, for all the ink spilled on this set of proofs, they do retain their common-sense appeal. What are the five ways? Let's let the saint speak for himself. Quote, The first and plainest is the method that proceeds from the point of view of motion. It is certain, and in accord with experience, that things on earth undergo change. Now everything that is moved is moved by something. Nothing indeed is changed except it is changed to something which is in potentiality. Moreover, anything moves in accordance with something actually existing. Change itself is nothing else than to bring forth something from potentiality into actuality. Now nothing can be brought from potentiality to actual existence except through something actually existing. But this process cannot go on to infinity, because there would not be any first mover. Therefore, it's necessary to go back to some first mover, which is itself moved by nothing. And this all men know as God. Oh, so Thomas's first proof is based on the concept of a prime mover, now understood as the result of an inference to the best explanation for what? Celestial dynamics. Why is all that stuff moving? Now, what's next? The second proof is from the nature of the efficient cause. We find in our experience that there is a chain of causes, nor is it found possible for anything to be the efficient cause of itself, since it would have to exist before itself, which is impossible. But if the chain were to go back infinitely, there would be no first cause, and thus no ultimate effect, nor middle causes, which is admittedly false. Hence we must predispose some first efficient cause, which all call God. Aha! Again, from the fact that we can now see directly the effects of causal chains originating in times remote from human experience, we are called upon to make plausible inferences as to how the first efficient cause got the game started. And this, says Thomas, 
is that, quote, which we all call God. He continues, The third proof is taken from the natures of the merely possible and necessary. If nothing existed, it would be impossible for anything to begin, and there would now be nothing existing, which is admittedly false. Hence, not all things are mere accidents, but there must be one necessarily existing being, which all call God. So, the third way is quite quite straightforward and commonsensical, as nothing can come from nothing, and as there are many things, there must have been something that was the source of the first thing. Thomas continues, The fourth proof arises from the degrees that are found in things, for there is found a greater and a less degree of goodness, truth, nobility, and the like. But more or less are terms spoken of various things as they approach in diverse ways towards something that is the greatest, just as in the case of hotter, more hot, which approaches nearer the greatest heat. There exists therefore something that is the truest, and best, and most noble, and in consequence the greatest being, and this we call God. Now finally, Thomas gives us the fifth proof, which is the natural order itself. Quote, We see that some things which lack reason, such as natural bodies, are operated in accordance with a plan. It appears from this that they are operated always, or the more frequently, in this same way, the closer they follow what is highest. Whence it is clear that they do not arrive at the result by chance, but because of a purpose. Therefore, there is something intelligent by which all natural things are arranged in accordance with a plan. And this we call God. Now each of these, all of them together, have invited powerful criticism over a course of centuries. Some theologians paradoxically reject the argument on the grounds that if the existence of God could be proved, there'd be no need for faith. Still others, taking a page from David Hume, question the very reality of causal powers and in any case relegate them to our modes of perception and cognition. Now then too, it may be said that Thomas has not given sufficient attention to the possibility of the infinite regress, such that there may be no first cause at all, only a limitless chain of effects back to and through still other effects ad infinitum. Now though this is a metaphysical possibility, it is not one that matches any experience we have of causality, and thus we would have a weaker warrant for assuming an infinite regress than for supposing an initial causal agent. Fools. I offer them more than they could know. Not just the world, but all that makes it up. Man thinks he's progressed. They're wrong. He's merely forgotten those things which gave life meaning. You'll all be provided for, cared for, happy. There is an order of things in this universe. Your species has denied it. I come to restore it. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Now there we just heard St. Thomas Aquinas's five proofs of God. Of course, none of them were proofs. And since then, we've, un- we've understood the answers to a lot of these. Motion, well, 
What causes motion? Something has to cause things to move. Well, we understand what that is. It's called gravity and mass. All mass creates a gravitational field, even your body. If you were floating freely, freely in space and another body floated close to you, you'd suddenly stick together. And on and on. That is how the universe works. And it creates a perpetual motion machine. We don't understand all the forces right down to the scientific perfection, but we do understand the general process. Well, as made clear in our opening quarter, I'm a supporter of the idea of the infinite regress, since there is no first cause. I do think the infinite regress can go on into infinity, a word that really is not what we think it is. And I see nothing wrong with that explanation because I simply do not accept the idea of non-existence. That's an utter self-contradicting term. But here's the joke. To create a first cause, to solve the problem of infinite regress, doesn't solve the problem of infinite regress. It's just another arbitrary starting point. So, my issue with religious belief based on this premise is not to do with the religion or the values of the religion. The only thing I can't accept and will never accept is the idea of nothing. Ain't no such thing as nothing, honey, because if there were, wouldn't that be something? That's it. And, and this whole idea of the concept of nothing or zero is a whole study in itself. If you look in mathematics and in the sciences and in many of the other disciplines of philosophy, you'll find that zero is often a starting point. It doesn't mean nothing. It means a nothing of something. I have zero apples. It becomes an adjective. It's part of the language of mathematics. And it's a perpetual starting point, meaning the start of some purpose or cause as determined by the observer. Every time I do a quarter of this show and I sit down to start it, I push my little timer on the clock back to zero. I'm the first cause. I am the first cause of setting that clock to zero so that we can time the show to make sure we don't go over time. But then you have to ask, who caused me? Then you have to ask, who caused that? And that go does go back into infinity. It's infinity we can't wrap our head around. And trying to create a God to, to solve the infinity problem doesn't solve anything. It just means we're not going to think about it. And then there's the idea of intelligent design. I think that's a completely backward way of looking at the universe because design implies creation. And no such process in the sense of creating something out of nothing, which I've just mentioned, meaning non-existence, is, is even, even possible to, to, to even consider. I can't even conceive of it. And creating God to explain that impossibility doesn't resolve it in any way. God does not belong in the department of metaphysics, and that's the point I want to conclude with today, later on. And it requires intelligence and reason to ascertain the nature of the universe. And that's our job. We're the intelligence that determines whatever that pattern of nature and purpose of nature and the universe is. It can't be any other way. Whatever design we perceive, it can only be based on our own purposes, as clearly illustrated in the works of many philosophers. Causes are always defined by their objectives. I mean, we use the words like that, we use that term like that all the time. Think about it. Um, you have a political cause, a social cause. The cause is an objective. It, 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 it speaks to an objective, not to anything metaphysical. Stay out of the, stay out of the metaphysical department. You know, I'm reminded of, of Indiana Jones when someone went into his class there and said, I, I want to discover the truth. And he said, well, the truth is in the philosophy department, not in archaeology, <laughs> right? 
It's the same way with the whole idea and the whole classification of where the concept of God should be on the philosophical hierarchy. Now, Roberta H. wrote a very interesting letter to us, which I found rather, well, inspiring. And she wrote, quote, We have been stumbling along, vaguely understanding that some kind of benefit accrues from living a moral life, but unsure what that benefit is and even what a moral life is. The offer of a supreme being that will direct us and dispense the reward has been a handy one to latch on to, but has turned out to be unsatisfactory as we recognize that there is no hell below or heaven above. Glimpses penetrate. We are all one. We cannot be happy if those around us are miserable. Serving others brings a measure of contentment, but the meaning of life eludes us, and the vague discontent is still there. Some pursue quote-unquote happiness as they buy lottery tickets or amass wealth. Some try to build themselves up by putting others down. Some seek fame and adulation and then inexplicably commit suicide. Some actively and often dangerously blame others for their unhappiness and lash out. It seems that finding the meaning of existence is vital to our determination to carry on. Therefore, to say that existence just is cannot satisfy. We must keep searching, but one thing for sure, trying to find an answer in a supreme being that demands obedience will not aid us in our search, end quote. Well, that was inspiring, Roberta, and I thought it was a most thoughtful perspective and well expressed. And we agree with your observation regarding personal satisfaction. By no means has it ever been suggested that accepting the fact of existence is a means towards that end. What is being stressed here is that efforts to prove quote-unquote existence are fruitless. It appears to us that acknowledging the truths of reality presents more discomfort than satisfaction. But you've touched upon an issue that's much deeper than it appears, and I want to talk about this a little more after this following break. And in fact, here again is Professor Daniel Robinson pretty much dealing with the very essence of Roberta's argument when he finally asks, hey, what's the point? Let's consider a painless world, a world of uh, ceaseless joy, a world of virtue. Well, this strikes me as a gift beyond the imaginable. It's a, it's a prize without equal, isn't it? This is a state of affairs that requires more to deserve it than the simple fact that one lacks it. I mean, it would seem to me to be a dessert, and as such, not a state of affairs simply created for the undiminished happiness of everyone and everyone. Frankly, I should regard it as unjust for such bounty to be spread around willy-nilly. I can even imagine a saint or two who would refuse it. Now, what about freedom of the will that defeats God's claim to omniscience? If God is omniscient, then God knows everything that will ever occur. And this includes everything we will do. Well, I'm not omniscient. I do know, however, that if I ask all of my students who happen to have red hair to raise their hands, I just say, all of you with red hair, please raise your hands, I can predict, I'm inclined to say with perfect accuracy, which hands are going to go up, all the while granting that those who play the game do so freely. So if I grasp the sense of omniscience as it is ascribed to God, I would expect it to include everything that is actual and possible. Now, among the items that are actual and possible 
are all the actions that will ever have been freely taken. Thus there is no incompatibility between our freedom and God's omniscience. That is, now in the previous lecture, I summarized G. E. Moore's conception of beauty as a state of affairs we would wish to see established, even if we knew we wouldn't have access to it. That with a choice between a world of beauty and one of ugliness, we would choose the former, despite the fact that it would never be part of our own personal experience. One might ask in this same vein what one would choose as between a dead cosmos of meaningless statistical possibilities and one alive with promise and nurturing of hope. We can choose to believe that the universe is a place of dead matter describable in purely statistical terms and having no point. There are arguments to that effect. But there are also warrants, by way of Thomas Aquinas and many other arguments, there are also warrants for believing that the design feature, the gnomic necessity, all of those things that allow one to negotiate space and time, the machinery, the bottle opener, the whole nine yards, so to speak, offer ample evidence of design, intention, plan, intelligence. Remember that the Greek word logos can be translated as reason, it can be translated as a, as a legal case. If two people are having a legal dispute in ancient Athens, we would express the point of the dispute as its logos. And so the biblical phrase might have been translated not in the beginning was the word, but in the beginning was the point of it all. Commander, I'm going to tell you a story. And you may even believe it. I'm listening. During the occupation, I was a member of a minor resistance cell. Name is unimportant. One day, this was in the mountains surrounding the Savang Valley, we were ambushed by Cardassian troops. Only three of us managed to escape. We hid in the hills for two days. Finally, the lack of food and water forced us down into the valley. We made our way to a ridge overlooking a small lake. As I was the only one still carrying a phaser, I went on ahead to scout for the enemy. Halfway down the embankment, I slipped, went sprawling on my back down to the edge of the lake just as a huge Cardassian emerged from the water. He must have just finished bathing. He stood there, frozen in surprise, dressed only in his underwear, shivering in the cold. I lay there looking up at him, too stunned to even move, and it was only when he reached for a phaser rifle that was lying across his clothes on a nearby rock that I realized that I was still holding my own phaser, and I shot him. His body fell on top of me, and that's how my companions found us a moment later. One of them recognized him as uh, Gull Zarel, responsible for the massacre of half a dozen Bajoran villages. Now, I tried to tell them what had happened, but they had already convinced themselves that I had killed Zarel in some kind of a savage struggle which is what they insisted on telling every Bajoran that we met. And no matter how hard I tried to deny it, the story continued to spread until it seemed all of Bajor had heard it. Soon, every victory won by the resistance was attributed to my leadership. Stories of my brilliance, my daring, my courage grew more and more unbelievable. 
Yet the people insisted on believing them. My reputation even followed me into the labor camp, where my mere presence seemed to inspire my fellow prisoners. And I had done nothing but shoot an unarmed Cardassian in his underwear. I'll never forget the look on his face when he died. He was so embarrassed. So you see, Commander, I have done what Bajor needed me to do. I have allowed myself to be a slave to my reputation all of these years. And now, it is enough. They still need you. But I am not the man that they think I am. Perhaps not. But Bajor doesn't need a man. He needs a symbol. And that's what you are. Not so unlike the royal family, Christ, Mohammed, Captain Kirk, you know. Now the ideas we just heard from both Professor Robinson and our audio bite from Star Trek, Deep Space Nine, somewhat reflect the concern that Roberta raised, don't they? And in a way, Roberta's statement to say that existence just cannot satisfy led me to this new way of looking at the whole idea of religion, God, and its proper place in a philosophical hierarchy. Philosophy is a discipline that has been developed and refined over thousands of years. Great and not-so-great philosophers and thinkers have all contributed to this process over the history of mankind. And for all intents and purposes, that has been determined for our consideration. Now, philosophy consists of five basic branches, and they're not arbitrarily chosen by any means, but they're all necessary, separate and distinct areas of study in matters of the kind we're discussing today. And those five branches are, one, metaphysics, two, epistemology, three, ethics, four, politics, and finally, five, aesthetics. Aesthetics is that branch of philosophy that concerns itself with art, literature, music, theater, entertainment, dance, movies, TV shows, and the cultural values being expressed therein. The audio bite we just heard from Star Trek Deep Space Nine is a perfect example of how our show includes an element of aesthetics in every week's broadcast. It tells a story that conveys a value or an idea of some sort. It represents a principle applied to personal experience. Aesthetics is, in fact, the only branch of philosophy that enables human beings to relate to the other four in a way that has meaning, what Roberta was talking about. All of the controversies and debates that exist over the issues of God, religion, morality, and choice, etc., free will, the debate has always been a metaphysical and epistemological one, as witnessed the debates between Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris discussed previously, and everything else we've been hearing on the show today, who are either defending or refuting concepts of deity and religion in terms of the origins of the universe, and the laws of physics, and Newtonian laws of cause and effect, and a whole host of subsuming you know, disciplines from physics all throughout science where this discussion has no place. This is not where the God debate belongs. That debate belongs in the philosophical field of aesthetics, where the power and influence of God in the stories told can be felt the greatest, and where it's no longer in conflict with science, reality, or reason, and even better, where it is in perfect harmony with all the rest. 
Like all the great legends, stories, parables of humanity, religious stories are also expressions of certain values and beliefs. Values and beliefs that in the end, if man is to survive, have to be real. Now finally, to our last statement about the whole issue of proof. Proof concerns only epistemological issues, the science of verifying knowledge, not matters of metaphysics, what actually exists, which is always, in this context, axiomatic. There's nothing to prove. In matters of epistemology, the first thing that must be established in order to be able to offer valid proofs are the definitions of the terms being used in any logical or reasoned equation. And this holds true of mathematics as well, especially. The values and the order of the symbols must be predefined and applied consistently. I mean, the number one must always correspond to a value of one, of something, an existent. The number two has to represent a value of two, and so on. And also, the order of our numbers cannot be arbitrary. The sequence of values ascends from zero to ten in a specific order. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And not in some arbitrary and subjective order like, you know, two, six, one, seven, three, nine, ten, four, eight, five. You know, in the beginning was and is the word. So these verbal symbols are the abstractions of what exists. And for that we require human consciousness, one that is utterly distinct from the consciousness of all other living beings of which we're aware. You know, I can see a star in the sky and speculate that it's just a dot of light piercing through an otherwise dark canopy. But that's all that my senses alone would ever reveal as to the actual reality of what that star is. That requires establishing a hierarchy of knowledge about the makeup of stars and planets, about the workings of gravity, and a whole host of related knowledge gleaned from various sciences. The proof of free will is the exercising of it. We have the evidence, not just the proof. We have the evidence of our senses to help us prove existence, quote-unquote. But that's not proof in the sense that proof might be applied in science or a court of law or in mathematics. So the essential difference between proof and evidence of the senses is that proof is a logical and reasoned explanation, as in mathematics, verifying or validating an assumption or theory. In order for something to be subject to proof, it must be capable of being unproven or proven to be incorrect. A proof is a test against its opposite possibility. Since it is not possible to argue that existence does not exist, as we've already illustrated, a test of proof that it does exist represents a meaningless exercise in attempting to prove an unprovable axiomatic concept. Every decision we make places us further down the path of determinism, a determinism created by our own choices. And right now, today's show has been determined, which therefore requires its determination. And terminate it we shall, until you join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color Color into black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright Whenever God makes terrible things happen Everyone says he works in mysterious ways But when I make terrible things happen I'm just a dick <laughs>
Maybe our in mysterious ways. <laughs> <laughs>